I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canada, A Yearly Journey. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. As well, if you're a fan of Canadian history, make sure you check out all of my shows, from John to Justin, Canadian History X, Canada, A Yearly Journey, and Pucks and Cups, along with Canada's Great War. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. Just click Donate. It helps keep this show going. And all donations in September will be going to the SPCA in the memory of my best pal Boris, who sadly passed away earlier this month. Okay, on with the show. As Canada entered its 11th year and second decade of existence, many important events, births, and deaths would occur. Today we continue our look at Canada through the years with 1878. On January 22nd, Ernest Drury would be born in Crown Hill, Ontario. He would go on to lead the Ontario Liberal Party and become its leader. This would lead him to become the 8th Premier of Ontario, serving from 1919 to 1923. Under his leadership, Ontario would introduce minimum wage for women, a mandatory weekly day of rest, broaden worker compensation benefits, provide improved support for parents and children born out of wedlock, and he would allow for greater expansion of electrification of the province. He would also start the first major reforestation project in North America, and, most importantly, he would arrange for a grant to be given to two unknown men named Frederick Banting and Charles Best, the two men who would go on to co-discover insulin. On February 23rd, William Warman would pass away. He had served as mayor of Montreal from 1868 to 1871, after becoming one of the leading businessmen in the city through investments in railroads and banking. On March 7th, both the University of Montreal and the University of Western Ontario would be incorporated. The University of Montreal still exists to this day and counts government officials, academics, and business leaders as alumni. Currently, there are 34,335 undergraduate and over 11,900 postgraduate students attending the school. Some of the most notable graduates of the university include Governor General Michael Jean, Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau, and Robert Barossa, former Premier of Quebec. As for the University of Western Ontario, which is in London, Ontario, it sits on 450 hectares of land. Currently, it has 24,000 students and 306 living alumni worldwide. Notable alumni include the aforementioned Sir Frederick Banting, astronaut Roberta Bondar, and John Roberts, former Premier of Ontario. It was on March 8, 1878, that Luc Letelier de Saint-Joux, Lieutenant Governor of Quebec dismissed Premier Boucherville over proposed railway legislation. The Lieutenant Governor had refused to approve legislation that had already passed both houses of the Quebec Legislature. The legislation would have required municipalities to pay for their own railway construction. This decision was made because the Conservatives had borrowed more than $7 million and used all of their credit. In order to continue building railroads, the party decided to fall back on the municipalities along the rail route as they pledged funds but had not made contributions yet. Le Tellier justified the measure by stating the government was acting incompetently and corruptly in regards to the railway legislation. Le Tellier had recently left politics where he supported the Liberals and he made no attempt to conceal his dislike for his conservative advisors. He would state, quote, After having studied the general state of the affairs of our province, after having become convinced that the legislative and administrative changes were becoming more and more necessary, 
I decided upon using, with moderation and with greatest possible discretion, the influence attached to my position in order to obtain the realization of that which I deemed to be the greatest advantage to the province. Boucherville would complain to the Governor General, but it would do very little. With Boucherville now out as Premier, Henri Gustave Jolie Lotbenier was brought in to form the government, giving Quebec its first Liberal government. The Montreal Gazette wrote of the matter on May 9, 1878, quote, We have no disposition this morning to deal at length with this new government. It is a straight rouge ministry, and, on the party grounds, apart from the great and more vital question of the violation of the constitutional principle of responsible government, for which it has made itself responsible, and to which it owes its existence, we are naturally opposed to it, end quote. The Conservatives still had the majority in the legislature, so Lotbinier requested the dissolution of the Assembly and an election was called. Throughout this election, the main issue was the economy as well as the actions of the Lieutenant Governor. The Conservatives would attack Lieutenant Governor Repeely on the campaign trail. Joseph Aldolf Chaplot, a leading Conservative, would even open his campaign with the slogan of, quote, Silence the voice of Spencer Wood and let the mighty voice of the people speak. Spencer Wood was the official residence of the Lieutenant Governor. Jolie de Lapinier would campaign on the slogan of, quote, The province must choose between direct taxation and economy, end quote. For the election, all hotels, taverns, shops, and stores were closed, whether they were licensed or not. Any place that sold alcohol was closed during the day of voting. Failure to do so would result in a $200 fine or six months in prison if the establishment owner failed to pay the fine. For many, the election was a more interesting affair than in previous years. This was especially true in the House of Commons on election night. The Brentford newspaper would write, quote, The Quebec elections excite a great deal of interest here and furnish this all-absorbing topic of conversation in the chamber. Speculative telegrams of all kinds have been received by the hundred tonight, end quote. On election day, there were issues with people trying to influence others at the polling stations. The Kingston British Whig would report that in one riding, the Liberals were surrounded by crowds of rough individuals who were apparently bent on interfering with voting. The newspaper stated, quote, An additional force of river and other police have been placed at the separate polls. The contest in this division will be severe and close, end quote. In the May 1, 1878 election, Boucherville and the Conservatives lost 11 seats to fall to 32, and their share of the popular vote also fell by 1.5%. The Kingston British Whig wrote, quote, May Day has proved a somber holiday for the Blues of Quebec. Contrary to the all-too-sanguine predictions of the Tory press, the electors of Quebec have doomed the party of taxation and corruption to at least a four-year's term of banishment from power, end quote. The Liberals under Jolie de Lardinier were able to pick up 12 seats and almost 10% more of the popular vote than they had in the previous election. The Liberals were able to hold on to power, who worked with two independent Conservatives to swing the vote in their favour, but only by one. On April 14th, John Walter Jones was born in Prince Edward Island. He was instrumental in introducing potato crops to the island, which are now a staple of the economy there. In 1935, he received a medal from King George V for being the best farmer in the province. That same year, he was elected for the first time to the legislature as a Liberal. In 1943, he would become the 20th Premier of the province. And during his tenure, which lasted a decade, he would repeal the strict prohibition in the province. Introduces the royal visitors to Lieutenant Governor Prowse and his wife. Then on to the Parliament buildings, famed as the spot where the fathers of Confederation met. Their highnesses are given a rousing reception as they are greeted by Premier Walter Jones. 
The islanders have come from hundreds of miles just to see the princess and her naval officer husband. He would join the Senate of Canada in 1953, passing away one year later. In June, the New Brunswick election was held only one month after John James Fraser had been appointed as Premier of the province after George Edwin King had resigned. He would lead his government to victory. While there were no party labels, 31 MLAs supported the government, while 10 formed the opposition. On June 20th, Seymour Farmer is born. He will go on to become the 30th Mayor of Winnipeg, serving from 1923 to 1924, and he will eventually lead the Manitoba Cooperative Commonwealth Federation from 1935 to 1947. In all, he will serve in the Winnipeg Legislature from 1922 to 1949, passing away two years later. On July 12, 1878, the Alexander Mackenzie government selected the Fraser River to Burrard Inlet route for the CPR, ending the hope of Butte Inlet of being the terminus of the mainland, with the Yellowhead Pass being the entry point into the mountains from the prairies. And as with so many things in politics in Canada, there were sharp party lines in regards to the routes. The Liberals supported the Fraser River to Burrard Inlet route, while the Conservatives supported the Butte Inlet route, but both agreed on the Yellowhead Pass. Sir John A. Macdonald would speak of the Yellowhead Pass as the right route on February 12, 1878, stating, quote, One thing is clear, and that is that the Yellowhead Pass is to be the pass through which the road will go, and I will presume the government will at an early day lay all the papers before us and all the survey reports in order to justify the conclusion, end quote. Of course, the Yellowhead Pass would not be the route. It would be the Kicking Horse Pass. I talk all about this in my podcast series about the building of the Transcontinental Railway, coast to coast, so be sure to check it out. On July 20th, British Columbia would host its election only one month after George Wacom became Premier of the province for the second time. Wacom would win the election and continue to serve as Premier of the province until 1882. On July 23rd, James Thomas Milton Anderson was born in Ontario. He would go on to become leader of the Conservative Party and find his way out to Saskatchewan. From 1929 to 1934, he was the Premier of Saskatchewan, despite accusations that he was closely tied with the KKK that operated in the province for a brief time at that point. Eva Tangwe was born on August 1st in Marbleton, Quebec, to a doctor father and his wife. She would live in the small community in Quebec until the age of six when she moved from Quebec to the United States. Her father would sadly die soon after, and around the same time she became interested in the performing arts. At the age of eight, she would make her first appearance on stage during an amateur night that had a prize of one dollar, something the family desperately needed. For the performance, she wore a dress made from an umbrella, a sign of things to come with her stage career. As a child actress, she would spend five years touring with little Lord Fauntleroy before taking small roles in stage productions of The Engineer in 1895 and Who Was Who in 1899. In 1901, she found her way to Broadway, performing in My Lady. She would first appear in newspapers at the age of 19 when she appeared in a production of Hoodoo, and a castmate accused her of hot-dogging on stage, which resulted in Tangway turning and choking the girl until she passed out. Three years later, in 1904, she was in The Chaperones, which helped her gain popularity, and the following year, she was performing in vaudeville as a solo act. From this point on, she would see her popularity soar, she would soon find herself going from making $350 a week to $3,500 a week. She would release her most famous song around this time, I Don't Care, 
The following is a recording she made in 1922 of the song, and I do apologize for the poor quality. was described as average, but it was her enthusiasm on the stage and the fact that she sang suggestive songs that the audience grew to love her. Many critics could not understand why she was so popular. One critic said her voice was like the wail of a prehistoric diplodocus and had no more music than a buzzsaw. Alastair Crowley, after seeing her perform in 1912, would state, She cannot sing as others sing, or dance as others dance. She simply keeps on vibrating, both limbs and vocal cords, without rhythm, tone, melody, or purpose. I feel as if I was poisoned with strychnine so far as my body goes. I jerk, I writhe, I twist, I find no ease. She is perpetual irritation without possibility of satisfaction, an avatar of sex insomnia, solitude of the soul, the warm of the death knot. Ah, me. She is the vulture of Prometheus, and she is the music of Mytilene. I could kill myself at this moment for the wild love of her. By 1910, she was at the height of her fame and was selling out shows across the continent. The American Genius, a publication of the time, would write that she was the perfect artist. She would also gain publicity for having champagne baths before performances and riding in hot air balloons or posing with tigers. Often, she would go through as many as 10 costume changes in one 30-minute performance. These dresses included everything from a dress and headdress made of feathers to a dress covered in coral. The coral dress weighed 45 pounds and cost $2,000, or $45,000 today. There was a time when she was nearly always in the newspaper for everything from allegedly being kidnapped, having a jewel stolen, or throwing a stagehand down a flight of stairs. On another occasion, she was said to have sliced a fire curtain when she felt her billing wasn't satisfactory. One time, a theater manager fined her $100 for sleeping through a matinee. In the evening, she would shred the stage curtain with a dagger. She would also get mad at a stagehand who stepped in front of her as she walked to her dressing room. She took a hat pin and stabbed him three times in the abdomen. According to the New York Times, as she was taken to the police station, she produced a roll of bills and said, quote, Take it all and let me go, for it is now my dinner time, end quote. Through her costume, she often made news. In 1909, the Lincoln Penny was issued. Tangu would appear on stage a year later in a coat made entirely from the new coins. But she would see her career slowly begin to decline in the 1920s as movies began to take over the entertainment world. In 1927, Tangu married 23-year-old Al Parado, 
but had the marriage annulled very early into the relationship, claiming fraud because he had two different names and she didn't know which one was real. Later, it would be discovered that the marriage was a publicity stunt, and when it did not get the promotional press she expected, she terminated the relationship. When the stock market crashed in 1929, Tangway would lose what some have estimated to be about $2 million or $30 million in today's funds. In 1931, she was playing four or five times a day in small venues to help bring in some money. And by the 1930s, she had retired from show business as she had trouble adapting to the changing entertainment world. She would lose her eyesight in the 1930s from cataracts, and her friend Sophie Tucker would pay for her to get her vision restored. In 1934, she wrote Henry Ford asking for a free car, stating, quote, I live off a sort of alley in a small house which is set in the back of a big one, there is no view other than the backyards of the other houses. It's very sad to have had so much and be cut down to poverty, but my illness prevents me from doing any work. I'm no tramp, having lived the very best. My home consisted of gold glasses, silver plates, and everything that meant refinement. Now I'm alone and cut off entirely from my own world I so loved. If I had a car, I could go in afternoons and like, connect some way with managers, agents, and find something to do. End quote. Ford would decline to give her a free car. She would spend the remainder of her life living off her savings and the sellings of her costumes. Many would later believe that she would become the template for Norma Desmond in the classic movie Sunset Boulevard. Prior to her death, she would do an interview with Life magazine stating that her artistry had been forgotten. And she would die on January 11, 1947 at the age of 68 in Hollywood, blind and in relative obscurity. On August 15th, Thomas Laird Kennedy is born. He will go on to serve briefly as the 15th Premier of Ontario. And while he will serve in the legislature from 1919 to 1934, and from 1937 to 1959, he was only Premier from October 19, 1948 to May 4, 1949. On September 17th, the federal election was held with Sir John A. Macdonald and the Conservatives going up against Alexander Mackenzie's Liberals. This was a critical election as Macdonald had been forced out to resign following the Pacific Scandal in 1873, relating to the Conservatives taking money from deals related to the railroad. I talked about this in a previous episode of this podcast, but I also devote an entire episode to it on my podcast, Coast to Coast. Many call this the first modern election in Canadian history. After being elected in 1874, the Mackenzie government began to reshape the election process in Canada. Along with the secret ballot that was extended nationwide, laws were changed so that the election took place across all the provinces on a single day. This would also be the first election to truly be dominated by economic issues. Newspapers overall were typically against the Liberals. The Montreal Gazette on September 17, 1878, the day of the election, reported in a column, quote, If the present government should be sustained at the polls and their one-sided free trade policies continued in operation, the progress of this country towards greatness will be a slow and tedious process. If, on the other hand, the policy of the Conservative Party is endorsed by a majority of electors of Canada, we can confidently anticipate a speedy revival of business, the rapid settlement of the country, and the building up on this North American continent of a dominion which will serve as the right arm of the British Empire." End quote. In 1876, Macdonald had introduced the national policy as a platform of the Conservative Party, this policy called for high tariffs on imported manufactured items to protect the manufacturing industry of Canada, a massive expansion of physical infrastructure in the country, and promoting population growth in Western Canada. It would be on this policy that Macdonald and the party would campaign on. The Conservatives campaigned on the slogan of Canada for the Canadians, 
and their campaign was run in such a way that it would be seen that those who opposed the Conservatives were disloyal to Canada itself. The Liberals were very much against the national policy, feeling that it would set region against region. Mackenzie would state, quote, I not only believe in having Canada for the Canadians, but the United States, South America, the West Indies, and our share of the European and Australasian trade. End quote. Many saw Mackenzie as overworked and tired after leading the country, while Macdonald, after five years away from the top posts, seemed to be rested and healthy, and by all accounts, sober for the most part. Macdonald would speak at many summer picnics throughout Ontario, where his natural speaking style was well received by residents. In the election, the Conservatives gained 69 seats, finishing with a majority of 134 seats. Their percentage of the popular vote was also increased heavily, with 229,151 votes for the party. The Liberals, in contrast, collapsed, losing 66 seats to finish with 63. Voter turnout was also at its lowest level in Canadian history to that point, with 69.1% of the eligible voters casting a ballot. That would be the lowest turnout until 1891. British Columbia, which had nearly been pushed to secede from the country over the previous five years due to the delay over the railroad, split its seats between the Liberals and Conservatives, while in Ontario the Conservatives finished with 60 seats to the Liberals' 27. In Quebec, the Conservatives dominated, claiming 45 seats to the 17 won by the Liberals. The only place where the Liberals actually won more seats than the Conservatives was in New Brunswick, where they picked up nine seats to the Conservatives' four. The the Ottawa Daily Citizen would report on the election day, quote, The policy of Mackenzie, Cartwright and Company universally condemned. The people's verdict, a splendid majority for Sir Johnny Macdonald and the national policy, end quote. The Montreal Gazette would report, quote, On the streets, crowds collected and the most intense enthusiasm prevailed. Friends who had known each other by sight previously grew fraternal under the cheering over the conservative reaction was the order of the evening. Bands played through the street and were followed by immense crowds singing and cheering for Sir John A. and the Conservative Party. Macdonald would actually be elected in Victoria, of all places, and the story of how that happened is an interesting one. Despite his party gaining a majority government, voters in his native Kingston had not forgotten about the scandal, and as a result, in a very rare occurrence, Macdonald's party won the election, but he lost his own seat. The Liberal, Alexander Gunn, defeated Macdonald, 991 votes to 847. This was no small feat. Gunn was a new politician who had unseated not only a Prime Minister, but someone who had held the Kingston seat since Confederation. Say what you will about Macdonald, though. The man was a skilled politician, and he had foreseen this, as in the previous election, he narrowly won. To secure his victory, he had himself put on the ballot in another place as well, Victoria. It was acceptable for a party leader to go into an election running in several ridings at once, but it was quite rare. In the 1878 election, Macdonald ran in three ridings, Kingston, Victoria, and a small riding in Manitoba. He would win in two of the three ridings, losing in Kingston. And despite never visiting Victoria and being the perfect example of a parachute candidate, Victoria elected Macdonald with 56.8% of the vote. Likely, a big part of that was the hope that Macdonald, as leader, would bring the railroad in sooner rather than later. In the Victoria election, Macdonald ran against Amos de Cosmos, the eccentric second premier of British Columbia, who had also served as an MP for Victoria since 1872. As it would turn out, thanks to Victoria being a two-member constituency, both men were elected to Parliament. But Macdonald would not actually visit Victoria until 1886, well after his time as MP had ended. 
As for the national policy, it would be implemented in 1879 and would fundamentally change Canada forever. The policy was popular in eastern Canada, but by the 1900s it was very unpopular in western Canada and would lead to the rise of the Progressive Party of Canada in the 1920s. By the 1930s and 1940s, it would slowly be dismantled by the Liberals until it was gone, for the most part, by the 1950s. On the same day as the federal election, September 17th, the Nova Scotia election was held, with Simon Hugh Holmes and his Conservatives winning a majority over Philip Carteret Hill and the Liberals. Holmes would be the fourth Premier of the province and would serve until 1882. On September 18th, Billy Shering was born in Hamilton. He would go on to become the winner of the marathon race of the 1906 Olympic Games taking the gold medal. Thanks to this win, two townships in Ontario would be named for him. He then quit athletics immediately and spent the rest of his life working as a customs officer until his death in 1942. The changes in leaders, something that this year had a lot of, would continue, this time in Manitoba. John Norquay would replace Robert Davis in November 1878, becoming the first Premier of Manitoba to actually be born in the region that would become the province. He would survive the December election in Manitoba, barely winning his seat. Nonetheless, he would continue to serve as Premier for the next nine years in the province. On November 25th, John Campbell would take over as the fourth Governor-General of Canada. At 33, he became the youngest Governor-General of Canada and the first representative of Queen Victoria to have been born during her reign. Queen Victoria was at first not in favour of it as John Campbell was married to her daughter. The Montreal Star would report one person stating, quote, the Queen, when I first spoke of it, thought that she would not like her daughter to be so far, but on considering that Canada is now only ten days off, and that she might return home every year, and after sleeping over it, she was quite in favour of the proposal. Quote. This generated a great deal of excitement within Canada, since there would be a member of the royal family living at Rideau Hall for the first time in Canadian history. The Montreal Gazette would report, quote, There is no doubt that the special interest has been felt on the arrival of His Excellency, from the fact that he is accompanied by Her Royal Highness the Princess Louise, and that for the first time in the history of this country, the Viceregal Residence is to be graced by the presence, as its mistress, of a Princess of the Blood Royal. End quote. Prime Minister John A. Macdonald altered his schedule to ensure that he could prepare for the arrival of Campbell and Princess Louise, and he would also order a special carriage and guards to protect her. It would be written of the appointment, quote, the appointment was hailed with satisfaction in all parts of the Dominion, and the new Governor-General entered upon his term of office with the hearts of the people strongly prepossessed in his favour. The Toronto Mail would write of the appointment, quote, With fine natural gifts, with more than the ordinary culture of educated men, with the experience of a politician, with moreover the mistakes and successes of many predecessors before him, Lord Lorne will enter on his viceregal duties with the happiest attitude. End quote. William Aberhart, also known as Bible Bill, was born in Ontario on December 30th, and he would go on to have a teaching career, teaching across the prairies and eventually finding his way to Alberta, where he worked as a principal in Calgary. He would become the principal of several notable schools, including Crescent Heights High School in the city. During the Great Depression, Bible Bill became interested in politics, especially after he saw the harsh conditions that Albertan farmers were dealing with. As a result, he was drawn to the social credit theories put forth by British engineer C.H. Douglas, which would be the precursor to the ideology of today's New Democrats. From 1932 to 1935, he would lobby the United Farmers of Alberta to adopt the social credit theories, citing that prices rise faster than income and that the purchasing power of individuals should be supplanted to allow for this. 
His efforts were successful, so he formed the Social Credit Party of Alberta, which would run in the 1935 provincial election and go on to a landslide victory, taking all but seven seats in the Alberta legislature. The Social Credit Party had not expected to come close to winning, and as a result it had no leader, so the province was without a premier at first. Bible Bill was a logical choice as he was the driving force behind the party, and on September 3, 1935, he was sworn in as Premier of Alberta, despite not having a seat in the legislature. In a November 4th by-election, Bible Bill won the Okotoks High River seat. Bible Bill was known for his belief that the Great Depression was caused by ordinary people not having enough to spend. The social credit ideas he wanted to be implemented couldn't be, though, because of the poor financial position of the province. One of those was an effort to give every Albertan $25 per month to spend to stimulate the economy, and it was as Premier that he would earn the nickname of Bible Bill for his outspoken Baptist views and his radio program. From the Bible Institute today, we have moved down to the grandstand in the exhibition ground, so that the friends and citizens of Calgary and District could meet together in a great monster Thanksgiving service on the occasion of our first anniversary of the social credit victory at the polls. Just one year ago today, yesterday, the people of this great province of Alberta declared by ballot rather than by bullet that they were determined to have economic freedom. Today we have met to give God the glory. With heartfelt praise and devotion, we want to acknowledge his mercy and his goodness to us. We have here in the grandstand and all around us thousands of people. I would judge that the people assembled here this afternoon are ready to acknowledge our indebtedness to Almighty God, to Jesus Christ, for his grace and goodness to us. We have loudspeakers all around the platform, and I trust the people are hearing me clearly. Yesterday afternoon, we had the largest picnic I ever attended at St. George's Island. Over 10,000 people, I judge, were present. It was an inspiring and enc encouraging sight. Proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that the people of Calgary and District have not lost their progressiveness in the matter of economic freedom. At the time of the election a year ago, we had about 4,000 people in the pavilion on August the 21st. But we never had a crowd of 10,000 people assembled together in Calgary on social credit occasions before today. I have here today the record of the registration for Calgary. I'm sure the folks of Calgary will be glad to hear it. Total number on the voters list in Calgary is 41,193. Bible Bill did implement efforts for relief programs to help out people who were dealing with poverty through public works and a debt relief program. But, of course, Bible Bill was also deeply religious, and he would push ideas including incredibly strict restrictions on alcohol sales. One such item was the banning of alcohol sales on planes while they were flying over Alberta, something that would remain in place until the 1960s. He would pass away unexpectedly as Premier of Alberta in 1943, and he was succeeded by Ernest Manning, father to Preston Manning, who would serve as Premier from that year until the late 1960s. In 1974, Eberhardt was named a person of national historic significance. It was also this year that British Columbia would succumb to anti-Chinese racism when the provincial government officially banned Chinese workers from public works. And one significant law was passed by the federal government in 1878, and it was the Canada Temperance Act, later known as the Scott Act, 
which would allow for the ban of the sale of alcohol across Canada. It put the power of banning alcohol in the hands of communities and provinces. I hope you enjoyed that episode of my look at 1878. Next week, we're of course looking at 1879. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx. And you can donate to the podcast by going to canadaehx.com and clicking donate. And I also want to thank all of my wonderful patrons. And I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Robert Dutt, Tom Leback, Elizabeth Brookman, Christy S., Martin Strache, Sarah White, Tom McMillan, Mike Sullivan, Wendy Mills, Kalen Pringitz, Michael Matthews, Joanna Parker, Jeff Dahl, Vobbs, Robert Page, Richard T., Colin Johnson, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Halbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roy, Luke Guess, J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.